So Money episode 1549, The Secret to Finding Your Enough with Manisha Takor, author of Money Zen. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Having made some decisions in my past that still make me tear up, like not going to my grandmother's funeral because I was in San Francisco so busy with important meetings in my fancy suit and handbag and just literally this is what ran through my mind. Gran is dead. She knows I love her. Um, I've got I've got clients that I need to be visiting. And it never even occurred to me that funerals are about the living, being there for my mom and my aunt. And, mm. you know, I mean, um, I look back and I made so many choices driven by this empty, never enough hole in me. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi, kicking off the week with a pretty philosophical and literal question. What is the definition of your quote unquote enough? Financial enough, emotional enough, they're intersected. Our guest today has written an incredible book on the topic. She is Manisha Takwar, previously appearing on So Money, and now back for a timely conversation about the secret to finding your Enough. Her book is called Money Zen. Manisha is a Harvard MBA CEO and founder and financial wellness expert who is here to help us break down this money happiness paradox and learn ways that we can build that essential base layer of not just financial wealth, but emotional wealth. Her book draws on science and many, many stories, including her own, about how to rip off your busy badge to put meaning into your life. We talk about the self-destroying belief that self-worth is net worth and how to escape life as a human doing and return to a human being. Here's Manisha Takor. Manisha Takor, welcome back to So Money. This is the reunion with a capital R. I haven't seen or talked to you in many years, but you were so instrumental in helping me launch my podcast. One of my first guests, one of the first people I ever wanted to interview on this podcast. So what a nice homecoming, especially because you have a new book now called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. You just know what we need to be talking about. Like This, <laughs> this is in the zeitgeist for sure on this podcast. And you, of course, tapped into it. Anyway, welcome and congratulations. Farnish, thank you so much for having me on. And this this question of finding your enough, as we were chatting about before we um, hit record, whoa, does it, it, it rings so deep with me and it, it feels um, like it's really starting to be a question that so many of us are struggling with. Yeah, obviously, I want to get into your personal desire to tackle this, but let's start with the with the culture. I mean, do you think that I, we know that COVID left an imprint forever on our generation, the generation that went through it, those of us who were lucky to be on the other side of it, and what we're left with is a lot of questions more than answers about yeah. who we are as people, what, what are we even doing? the point of things. What is it about the culture that we're living in now that 
so desperately needs an answer to this question? Oh, there are many things, but let let me kick it off by just describing the three most common ways I see this anxiety pop up so that people um, know that they're not alone. And what I've identified is that there are kind of three buckets I'm seeing. One is people feeling that no matter how much they earn, how many accomplishments they achieve, how much praise they receive, it's just not enough to make you feel whole inside. And Mm -hmm. the second thing that I'm noticing is um, for other people, it presents itself as this, this feeling like you've subconsciously embraced the mantra from society that the answer to anything that ails us is more, do more, earn more, be more. Mm -hmm. And then the third that I find people experiencing is that no matter how many times you try and do things like gratitude lists and meditating and embracing positive psychology, which are all so important, you still feel like a human doing instead of a human being. And the reason I think it's crystallized is that we all can see everything can change in a moment. And that's not a visceral awareness that I think as a globe, as humanity, we intellectually knew, but we didn't at a soul level know. And now we all do, thanks to COVID. Yeah. Really, truly true. And almost like I'm I'm really into fear right now. You talk about like how gratitude journals are great, but they're not enough. And I'm like, because yes, all of the emotions are important, not just what you're grateful for, but maybe what's missing in life too. And recognizing why you long for certain things. And COVID, I mean, talk about a terrifying chapter in humanhood. And that fear was in some ways a wake-up call to get us to see what it is we actually want out of life. You yourself had a, a realization. It wasn't COVID necessarily that got you to a place of recognizing that maybe you were in this, um, as you said, you know, a busy culture, as opposed to being a, instead of being a human being, you were being a doing being. Is that what it is? A doing being? or A just human a, doing um, versus a human being. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, you know, I've, I, I got the sense last time you were on that you were working through a lot in your own personal life that you did share on the show as well, but that didn't realize that even your corporate life, your work life was so taxing. Take us back to your own path and how you kind of had this wake up call to your own sense of enoughness, because you were definitely on the other side of this yourself. Oh my God. Yes. And I I think it started all about five years ago, literally. So um, I've kind of gone full cycle um, with you, Farnoosh. Um, What I observed um, when I hit about, as I was approaching age 50, I got very sick for the second time. And um, it's sick enough that basically I... was I was sleeping all the time and I was on, you know, medically ordered bed rest and, you know, I was having needles poked in me and blood tested and it, it was scary. And during that time of reflection, when the doctors were trying to figure out what was wrong with me, that's when it hit me that I'd spent my entire adult life trapped on a 24-7 hamster wheel of hustle culture. 
And it was from day one when I got out of undergrad and, you know, hopped into the investment banking world and then moved into business school and the investment management world. And even when I left the traditional corporate world to go out on my own, the worst boss, the meanest boss, the most, you know, uh, demanding boss I ever had was me. Um, And so I found that because I was seeking my identity for a variety of reasons um, in my, in my work and viewing my self-worth this is embarrassing to say, but viewing my self-worth as my net worth, mm-hmm. um, that it just kept pulling me back underwater into um, the way m- m- my never enough manifested itself, which was severe workaholism. You you write about how often when we talk about enoughness, we go straight to the numbers. What's your financial enoughness? What's your what's, yeah. how much in your bank account would be enough for you? And that you say is missing an important first step, which is we need to really be focusing on more foundationally emotional enoughness. Can you can you talk about the two differences and and what is the the homework, I guess, or the the work work yeah. that we need to do to, to understand emotional enoughness? I feel like I'm kind of there. And maybe we can talk about that later. Like I'll talk about my own evolution to this. And I do think time helps. I do think making a lot of mistakes <laughs> getting drowning through hustle culture. Like, you know, if you can make it to the other side, it's quite the awakening. But first let's talk about emotional wealth that you talk about in the book. It's something that's really important to to unpack this. Yeah. So um, to put this uh, in context, there was a study that came out a long time ago, like when you and I were first um, really diving into the industry. And it said that $75,000 $75,000 was the you know maximum amount that you needed to be happy and anything beyond that wasn't going to increase your happiness. And most of us who are living on the East or West Coast at that time rolled our eyeballs thinking like, yeah, you're not raising a family on, on that very easily. And recent research out of Penn shows that that study is not true, but it's, it's wrong, not for the reason a lot of us would assume that the number is too low even though you'd have to inflation adjust it to get it to, you know, a number for today. But because what they found was once your base financial needs are met, once you have financial health, incremental earnings beyond that do not increase your life satisfaction if you do not have concurrent with the foundation of financial health, a foundation of emotional wealth. And, you know, it makes sense when you stop back. It's it's um, it, if the two forces together are are synergistic, and I think about it a lot, like Maslow's hierarchy of the needs and our financial health. It, the the numbers around it differ for everyone, but it's making sure that we are able to enjoy today and prepare for tomorrow, and not be stressed out about it because we have been following your work for years and we know all the sound financial tactics to follow. The emotional wealth is all of the other stuff that makes life worth living. And I know that sounds really trite. And so um, if you'd like, I can tell you about a tool that I encourage people to use to start digging into that. Yeah, please do. And that doesn't sound trite. And I just think it's personal. I think it's hard to get into this. 
um, without using examples. So maybe give us the resource and then tell us how you've done it. So there's a question that I have been asking people over the last 10 years as I've given talks or done different types of of, uh, economic empowerment workshops for women. And I ask people, you know, if you had, um, let's just say out of the sky, $10 million after tax drops on your head, and on the same day you find out you have 10 years left to live, what are you going to stop doing and what are you mm-hmm. going to start doing? Mm-hmm. And what I find after having asked this and literally, you know, I ask people to put this on index cards and I read them off anonymously. And now I have like a humongous stack of them. Uniformly, people would stop working <laughs> and stop worrying. Um, and um, uh, what they would start is... Um, enjoying their life, spending more time with family and friends, um, Mm -hmm. traveling, doing volunteer work, um, picking up a new language, learning an instrument, and not caring what anyone else thought. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you 90% of the answers are those things. And so when you drill down into those things, you know, like in my case, what I really want is a simple, simple life. I, I, I just want to enjoy small, small joys, like my coffee in the morning and the feel of the hot mug in my hands, um, or the time to be able to read a novel and not feel guilty that I'm reading a novel. And most importantly, the time to spend with, with family. And those are the things that fall into that emotional wealth bucket. And up until now, I think a lot of us have felt we have to fill that financial bucket. Um, Those of us who struggle with the cult of never enough, we have to fill that financial bucket before we can give ourselves permission to ease into the emotional wealth. We may go through the motions of the emotional wealth, but we're not really there because we're Mm -hmm. too hooked into that number that enough number. So often I hear from listeners or I read articles. I'll give you the example of the article in New York Magazine about a year ago, where a young woman who was in her 20s amassed a ton of wealth through her company's IPO, something like $8 million. And she wrote this anonymous essay about how it pained her to accept this money because it was riddled with guilt and shame. And it wasn't just the random voices in her head. It was actual people in her life, like her mother and her father, who were saying to her, don't tell anybody you got this money. And, you know, as if it was a bad thing because she hadn't quite earned it, right? It wasn't like she built something and then it was like she just was lucky, you know? And But hello, luck has so much to do with all of our ability to be where we are, right? Like to think that you're just like this person who worked entirely hard your entire life and that's the only reason you are entitled slash have wealth. Well, that's not a full story. And so she was struggling with, all this external, this external narrative around what money represents and how, oh, and her mother would say, we work, your father and I work so hard and now you're richer than us, as opposed to saying like, congratulations, <laughs> you know, like, and so I guess the question I have for you is how do you tune out, 
you know, I think everyone listening is like, yes, I want the simple life. Yes, I want to be able to remember what it feels like to hold coffee in my hand instead of like trying to drink it as fast as I can um, with a straw, you know. And so for you, at least, what was the first step in simplification? The first thing that happened to me that felt actually useful was a conversation with a woman named Mary Laverde, um, who by true serendipity and luck, I, I met at a speaking event, I don't know, 15 years ago. And um, we reconnected and she was telling me that she'd worked at a, she'd been the director of a hypertension center for a number of years. And she was just fascinated with the difference between people who were healthy and happy and people who were stressed out and on, you know, the verge of having a heart attack and being on the hamster wheel, um, drinking their coffee with that straw. <laughs> and so she said that the mantra that she's used in her life is connection creates balance. And that whenever she feels out of whack, she asks herself, what small, no matter how tiny it is, what small step to whom or what do I need to connect to move towards happiness? And so I started really small with really small things. Um, you know, it, it might have been, you know, like allowing myself to buy um pretty new felt pens so that when I was writing, it might, uh, you know, I would feel colorful joy. It, it might be picking up, um, you know, it, uh, when I'm in Whole Foods, treating myself to, you know, a candle that, you know, doesn't on the surface make economic sense to buy, but brought me such joy to light um, next to my bed. Um, and ultimately, it culminated in my buying a small 550 foot cabin in rural Maine. And I now live half the year in Portland, Oregon and half the year in rural Maine where I have tons of simplicity and small joy, but that's about mm. a five year journey. It was not easy, yeah. especially in the beginning. I didn't feel I was worthy of, of having that joy because I hadn't filled mm. up my enough bucket, my financial enoughness yet. Manisha, when you said that you want to feel not guilty about reading just a book, like a, a purely like, you know, escape book, that's me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of it is because I actually do like to feel like I'm learning. Like I, I will watch if I'm on, if I have a, like an hour or two free and I'm on Netflix, I will go to the documentaries first because I just, I just, that's me. That's my personality. But I think there is also a part of me that would, that does feel a little like I'm cheating <laughs> if I'm just reading like, or if I'm watching like a rom-com or, you know, like I have responsibilities. What are you doing? That voice in my head. No Bridgerton, uh, none. No. Oh, but listen, I did watch Bridgerton. The second season, okay. not so much, but the first season I was all in. It sounds to me that what your five-year journey consisted of, even with the smallest purchase, was an experience. You know, I read uh, Pursuit of Happiness. I think it was called yeah. The Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. Um, one of the things I remember, and of course that book is full of research too, that even just like buying a candle scent. And if you, ex if you invest in an experience that takes you back, like scent is a very powerful sense. And so when I smell perfume that maybe takes me back to high school. So to your point, like a candle, it's $38, but every time you smell it, 
It is allowing you to relive life in a, in a joyful way, potentially, and not to try to excuse these bigger purchases, but I love a good experience, whether it comes packaged like a candle or it's, you know, something else. What you're saying about the candle, I'm, I'm like jumping out of my chair. I, I apologize for interrupting, but the, the, no, candle, please. the reason I love the candle was it took me back to my college years. I mean, literally, yes. that's what it did. It wasn't like an experience yeah. on a superficial level. I mean, like viscerally, it took me back to those yeah. years where Visceral. I felt Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. The the world is a white canvas, and um, I didn't feel weighed down by obligations and duties and the shoulds and the have tos, and and that's what the candle did. It evoked those feelings, right? And what I'm also hearing from you, and kind of what I do a little bit as well, is being more proactive with my calendar and my time. I live by my Google calendar, but what I've been trying to do more and more is to create blocks of time during the week, especially where there's just no, nothing is being scheduled. Nothing is being scheduled. And it doesn't mean that I have to fill that time with something else productive. It just, I could take a nap. I could just like go for a walk. I mean, just not doing is doing something better sometimes. And also filling your time with the things that you recognize as priorities. Like I've always wanted to travel for a month somewhere with my family. It was hard in the beginning because of the kids' ages, but I think we're ready. I think 2024 is going to be the year. So I'm not going to wait till 2024 to plan it. Starting now, I'm going to block off those weeks and reverse engineer that. And so what that does is it makes me committed to something that I want to do, but it also reduces the opportunity for things that I don't want to do to get on my calendar during those weeks. Um, so being deliberate about what, what you want to do, but truly it comes down to knowing yourself. And when I was starting out in this space in personal finance as a 20-something, writing for 20-somethings, the first thing I said to, to everybody and I was speaking from experience, was your money is meaningless unless you feel, you figure yourself out first. Because in your 20s, no one figures themselves out. We think we have figured it all out. We think we're going to follow the path to success that has been modeled for us, which seems really cool. So we're just going to do that. But part of this is just requiring us to fail, it sounds like. Like there's no like arriving at this right away, right? Like that just, who gets to do that? Who is that person? I want to have them on the show. It's, <laughs> I mean, what you say is 100% true. Every really happy person I know has face planted multiple times and is actually profoundly grateful in retrospect for the face plants. And, mm-hmm. and that certainly is the case for me, whether it was my failed marriage, which I wouldn't wish on anyone, to having made some decisions in my past that still make me tear up, like not going to my grandmother's funeral because I was in San Francisco so busy with important meetings in my fancy suit and handbag. And just literally, this is what ran through my mind. Gran is dead. She knows I love her. Um, I've got... I've got clients that I need to be visiting. And it never even occurred to me that funerals are about the living, being there for my mom and my aunt. And, Mm. you know, I mean, um, I look back and I made so many choices driven by this empty, never enough hole in me. Um, Mm. And, you know, 
I look back now, and even though I feel so sad about the events that led to sad things in my life, I look forward now with such two different perspectives. One is grace, um, mm-hmm. and I love helping other people when they when they face plant to know that um, really there is a silver lining in there somewhere. You might not find it until fifteen years later, but there is, um, mm-hmm. and and also that that without, you know, there's a saying without pain, there isn't pleasure. And I, I think that having these tough experiences make us enjoy the pleasant experiences so much more. And when I think about your upcoming trip, like what, what jumps in my mind is old Manisha and new Manisha, how I would do your trip. Old Manisha would be working up to the last minute uh, paying top price for the plane tickets and the lodging because I didn't have time to do it before arriving, like ha- bringing in the whole family, not really sure what we were going to do and kind of just feeling frazzled for the first couple days. New Manisha would start right now, well in advance of 2024, watching documentaries about the place I'm going to visit, reading fiction books about the place I that take place in the place I'm going to visit, you know, having the the kids sit down and look at the map and see where we're going and, you know, talk about the history and um, starting the experience well before the experience, because you you said something so important. It's about the experience. Um, Mm -hmm. Really, it all boils down to that. And so, learning to stretch and elongate and savor our experiences versus the way so many of us with our human doing hats have not done before. And so Mm. even though we may have traveled, we, we didn't experience the travel. Right. Right. We were caught up in sort of the operations of the travel and then taking the photos for the Instagram of the travel. Oh my gosh. Um, You know, as you were speaking and about your grandmother and I'm, you know, I want to also add that what you experience and your reflection on that experience is so invaluable to you today, as you know. But for anyone listening who has felt as though they've made mistakes or there are things in their life that they regret, I want to give you this. I write about this in my next book as well uh, about regret because we all have fears of things ending and sort of not having an end the way that we want or things not going the way that we want. And your friend and my friend, Daniel Pink, his latest book, one of his latest books, I think, he writes a book like every six months, but one of his books more recently is called The Power of Regret. Power of Regret. It's a bestseller. And he talks about how regret, you know, we are a culture that always says no regrets, no regrets. No, regret is a gift sometimes. It's what he calls an essential component of the human experience that is ubiquitous. Oh, that gives me chills. And he says, regret doesn't just make us human. It also makes us better. And the trick to using regret as a source of power is looking back at these moments, whether it's the funeral that you missed or the relationship that didn't work out or the job that you left for good reason, but still you're left with some hanging feelings. The trick to using regret as a source of power is looking back at these challenging times by thinking, if only rather than at least. 
So when you come out of a regretful experience, you might think, well, at least I didn't do it this way or I didn't do it that way. At least that didn't happen, which is fine. And that sense that gives us a sense of gratitude, but also go to the harder place, which is to think, you know, if only I had done it this way, or if only I had re- recognized this. We don't want to go there sometimes as humans. It's a hard thing to reflect on. But if only that, if only thought, yes, it's filled with a little bit more grief, but that's the point because grief is also a great teacher in life. It, you know, by making us feel worse today, regret helps us do better tomorrow. And that's our friend Daniel Pink. But that's also you, Manisha, because you've lived this and you know this to your core. You said something earlier about self-worth and net worth and how you were are ashamed that you at one point connected those two. But that's also all of us. I feel like that's so hard to untangle. And I don't think that our work culture does us any favors because when we talk often about negotiating for ourselves and salaries, we, we mangle this idea of value, self-value and self-worth. And I would love for you to offer maybe some wisdom around that. Like as you are in the workplace, how do you differentiate your personal sense of value to what you're actually worth on the job? Because those are different things. We often take our salaries very personally. Whether we're making a lot or not a lot, we attach our sense of, again, self-worth to that. What is the what is the distinction you want us to make? That your self-worth, if it is tied to your net worth, is a recipe for a toxic existence on this planet because there is no finish line. It's mm-hmm. different than taking pride in the steps you took to create your financial health. Tying your self-worth to your net worth is saying, I'm not good enough until my net worth gets to X. And then invariably you get to X and you're like, oh, wait, now there's inflation. So it's, you know, X plus. Mm -hmm. And what, what I found was I literally started looking at myself as a number, which drove me to then engage in a series of toxic behaviors around work um, and my career, essentially making them the entirety of of my life. And what I've come to realize is the whole time I was holding myself to self-worth equals net worth, I wasn't looking at my mom, who's a teacher and whose earnings peaked out at $40,000 but she's helped so many students over the course of her life. I never looked Mm -hmm. at my mom and thought, well, you're worth less than me. Um, And, you know, I don't look at my friends who work in other industries that don't pay like finance do and, and value them any differently. And so it it was really, um, I had that mindset up until I kind of hit this cracking point around a, you know, the approaching midlife. And then I just, it, it really struck me that we should all sit down and write self-worth equals question mark and ask ourselves, mm. what do we want our self-worth to be based on? Because I think for most of it, it's going to end up being who we are as a human and yeah. what we put out in the world, whether that's our work Uh, our relationships, what we give back, hopefully is a combination of all of them. Um, 
But tying your self-worth to just one thing, especially money, that's where it can get really toxic. Yeah. And listen, I think I'm I, I feel I relate to that a lot. I think I, I, ch- I chased my own tail for a long time. And like I said earlier, uh, I don't know what made me have an awakening. I think it was honestly a combination of things. I think it was becoming responsible for other people, chiefly yeah. children. For others, it could be a parent or just having dependence really. Um, you just can't do it all, you know? And that's probably by design and for re- for good reason. Like you shouldn't do it all when you also have more on your plate that includes humans, <laughs> you know, that are dependent on you. And so you have to get really clear on your values, your priorities, your time. You start to be much more protective of your energy. And so I'm grateful for other people in my life, like my kids who, although they don't do it on purpose, I am reminded of these things on a daily basis that I too have limits. Um, I think too, it's again, just also, well, COVID was a big wake up call, but I think it's also growing older. And, you know, I've said this in the past recently on the show, but having the mentorship of older adults in my life, those that I have actively pursued, those friendships I've actively pursued, um, the, the wisdom that you can that you can glean from someone that's just just five years older or fit ten years older, that is, I, I it is not lost on me. It is priceless wisdom because wouldn't you want to know the future? What does the future have for me? What are your what are the things you wish you hadn't done or that you still want to do that I can learn from? You know the resources are out there for us, and I think that's our opportunity. Manisha Takor. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for writing this book, Money Zen. We'll put the link in our show notes. And also you have a really cool quiz. Are you trapped in the cult of never enough? We should all take that. It is lots of fun. It's at moneyzenquiz.com. It's seven questions, but they are shockingly eye-opening. Thank you so much, Manisha. We hope to have you back. Enjoy your summer in your cabin. Uh, I know um, a lot of us wish we were you, and hopefully a lot of us will be you after we read your book and we realize how to simplify, how to get to money zen. Have a great summer. I'm off to paddleboard. See you later. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah, get it. Thanks so much, Farnoosh. It's just always wonderful to get to talk to you. Thanks a lot to Manisha for joining us. Her book again is called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. I have the link for that book in our show notes. Our conversation about our relationship with money continues on Wednesday with Kristen Keffler, who's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, How to Deal with Money When You've Got a Lot of It. Navigating family wealth and creating an impactful life is what Kristen's all about. It's really interesting stuff. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Money.